Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Square One. A podcast where we take our guests back to square one, where they first started their business, so that you can learn from their successes and failures. Brought to you by Isaiah and Malcolm with Omni Home Services. Today we are honored with Jason Bowers. Jason is the owner of and I'm sure if you live in Chattanooga, you've been to one of these establishments, The Bitter Alibi, Daily Ration, Clever Ill House, Civil Provisions, Dilemma, and currently working on Lost in Transit and something at the Choo Choo. Maybe it's going to be called Bad Motive. Maybe it's going to be Loco Motive. <laughs> We're probably going to come up with a name in this podcast. So um, I love it. Jason, thanks for being with us today, man. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. This is exciting. I'm ready for it. Uh, so let's just jump right in then. So what I think is on everybody's mind is how do you come up with the names for your restaurants? Everyone is different. You know, it's all all done in house. We have a kind of a graphic design team that kind of helps us uh, with some of it. But like Bitter Alibi was a team effort. Daily Ration, my wife actually came up with. Clever was my business partner, Jeff, kind of landed on. Civil Provisions kind of a group effort. So yeah, it all just kind of... We, we usually have a Google Doc with about 100 different names, okay. um, and then we kind of narrow it down to figure out, okay, what's strong? Like, what do we like? What's a little different? And then usually we'll Google it and be like, all right, is there like 20 restaurants with this name? And and so we try to find something that people can find easily, too. So what is, I mean, you've got like, it's kind of hard to describe the vibe that you've got going on at these places, but it's real... Just cool. So, like, where do you get the inspiration to do that? Yeah, I think most of these places are places at the time of my life that I was looking for. So, like, Bitter Alibi, when we opened that, I was like, I'm just looking for a cool basement. I just gotten back from New York cool City. Place to drink. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With me and like 10 buddies. That was it. That's all I was looking for. And I just gotten back from New York City and went to so many cool little like basement underground spots. And I was like, Chattanooga just needs. Something that's a little cozy um, because this was the time, you know, this was 10 years ago where, you know, the Terminal Brew House had just opened up. There was like uh, the feed company, Clyde's, like some of these that were like 300 seat restaurants and bars. And I was kind of like, I can't do that right now. These guys are a decade ahead of me building uh, restaurants. So I was like, let's just do something small, kind of cozy. So, yeah, it really just depends on time of my life what I want. So right now, this like civil provisions and bar up on Signal is a nicer restaurant focusing on wine, kind of pan-Mediterranean food, a cool place for like a date night or just a cool hangout around the bar. So That's pretty awesome. Before we get like too deep into the restaurant specifically, and of course we'll roll back heavily into that, let's look at your trajectory. Where did you start from and how did you get into the restaurant space altogether? Yeah, so I moved to Chattanooga in uh, 2005 and started working for a restaurant, Sticky Fingers, downtown. And in 2005, that was like one of the five restaurants downtown. And I worked alongside a lot of people that are currently running restaurants or have opened up places or are really still in the game. So from that, there was a lot of like leadership that came out of it. And their training was perfect. Their food execution was really good. And so that just motivated me a little bit to not just make it a summer gig to kind of be like, okay, how do I, how do I use this to pay for college? How do I, you know, kind of figure out how this thing actually works? And in 2009, when I graduated, 
was a wonderful time for entry-level positions. I couldn't get an interview with anybody. Um, so I kind of stayed in the business, bartending at like Taco Mamacita, Terminal Brew House. Those were kind of my main gigs. Um, and, you know, the owners of those have gone on to open a lot of places. And so learned a lot through that. And then in 2014, I was actually a teacher. I taught ESL in Chattanooga, Hamilton County Schools for two years. And I was happy with a lot of it, but I didn't see myself long-term there. So it was that when I was kind of like, all right, I'm going to take some time off from teaching and figure out if this is something I can do by myself. How did you go financially, if you want to get into it, mm-hmm. how'd you go from bartending and teaching to owning six restaurants? That's not an easy feat. No, it takes, I mean, it's definitely a lot of work. It's definitely a lot of time commitment. You know, I saw, I think really the difference between, you know, people who are just working in the business to owning the business. It's, I stopped counting how many hours I work a long time ago. I don't even, <laughs> people ask, how many hours? Welcome I, to I entrepreneurship. I don't care how many hours I work. Like, it's all about balance. So I'm like, that's been my focus from the beginning is how do I balance the things I really care about and work? And how can those things live together in harmony? Or because if they can't, then, you know, you know what happens. It all goes down. So, so how do you make that work? Yeah. A um, couple different things. I mean, for, for me, the beginning opening Bitter Alibi, I was looking for a low, like very entry level of getting into it. So I wasn't going to build out a full kitchen. Like I found a place that had already existed as a bar, which I always tell people is the best way to get into the restaurant business is find something that's already been a restaurant because Mm. you're going to save a million dollars if you just either buy an existing place or find a lease that, you know, a restaurant that's hurting and kind of come in and say, I'd like to take it off your hands kind of thing. But I opened up Bitter Alibi for total all-in was close to $11,000. So that was getting all my licenses. That was working out with the lease, like the owner of the building, to kind of get all that started. So it was a really low entry. I was going to say, like now in comparison with your other restaurants, that's like really low, right? A total blip. I mean, okay. yeah, I never do that again. Okay. I mean, yeah, I was just like, I mean, you could. It's just the perfect thing where the owner was like, I need somebody in here to make this work. It's also disgusting. Somebody's got to come here, clean this thing up. I don't want to do it. Like there's so many things that like went in our favor. And so, yeah, that was, it was a pretty easy entry. And really everything that we've taken since then has been me reaching out to people and saying, hey, you know, we, I got reached out, Daily Ration owners reached out to me and said, it was called the Farmer's Daughter before. And they reached out and said, hey, we're looking to move out of this space, but we'd like you guys to take it over. And so he actually... Him and his wife gave me like good loan terms to be able to buy him out over years. So we were able to, the next week, we took a week of cleaning. The next week we were open with coffee and pastries. And within the next month we were open like full restaurant service. So it was a really quick turnaround. And looking back, we probably should have taken a little bit more time, but we really didn't have the money to just sit around and pay bills and pay staff. So it was kind of a quick turnaround. Speaking of staff, how many total staff members do you have? With this new opening at the Choo Choo, it's probably going to be poking at the 100 mark. Like wow. it's, I think we're in the 80s, 90s right now. We do have a lot of like 1099 kind of contract bartenders too that help us with events and things like that. So they're not on payroll, but there's probably 25 to 30 a year that we bring on. How can you effectively lead those people? Do you have like a team? Do you have a right-hand man? Does every store have a GM? Do they meet regularly? Tell us about that setup. 
Yeah. And that's like an evolving thing where, you know, there's new positions kind of being created every three or four months, depending on our growth strategies and all that. So I have two business partners with um, a few of the restaurants and they are kind of operating partners of like Bitter Alibi and Daily Ration. Those are the ones I own personally. The other ones they have ownership in and they help operate the existing ones. So it's kind of like us three at the top and then we have GMs and kitchen managers at all the places and then kind of each of them have assistants. Um, and then we have an operations manager and a catering and events manager. So a lot of managers, but the whole idea is the more people that you have kind of speaking the same language, running it the same way, then, you know, they have some ownership of it. They get percentages like profit share and commissions. So it's like they want to see whoever they're, whoever's working under them do the best job and make the company the most money. So. That's pretty awesome to see the structure that you guys have rolling within there. And obviously it's working because all the restaurants that you're involved with are pretty well known, man. Yeah. Chattanooga. So let's get a little bit into you, Jason, as a person, sure. because obviously you've got to be a pretty, pretty well functioning person to make this stuff happen. One question that we like to dive into on the podcast is just as far as routines. Now this could be a morning routine or it could just be a favorite routine of yours at any point in the day? Do you have one that you like? Yeah, I, I think this business is really hard to get a routine. I mean, I, and especially I have two young kids and before I had, before I was married and had kids, uh, you know, I didn't have a routine, but life felt a little simpler. Now it's like I have a routine. It always gets broken. It's kind of my constant, <laughs> like, you know, thing that I'm always like, I should get up earlier. I should go to bed earlier. I should make more time. Um, I do really enjoy taking at least an hour out of my day to not be around anybody that I work with. Like I'm not at home because if I'm at home, I'm going to be, I should rake the leaves. I should, you know, this thing is dusty. I'll just get like trapped into that. So I usually go to like restaurants or bars that are really slowed for lunch. And I usually try to get that like one to three when I know nobody's in the restaurant. There's a place called Albatross uh, Golf Simulator, which I probably shouldn't say this because I don't want anybody knowing where I'm at. But uh, <laughs> my wife has my location. That's the only thing I'm like, all right, you get to know where I'm at. Nobody else. But, you know, it's pretty chill during the day. And so I'll go in there and kind of nestle in a corner and like just focus on usually big picture things. Like I'll, you know, read through the emails, but more of just like, okay, what's what's the thing I can spend an hour on to like try to help this thing grow? And some of that's writing grants, some of that's working on kind of our social media kind of ideas, um, marketing and, and things like that. But most of it's like the big picture stuff of what's the next thing we need to do as a company to ensure that, you know, these hundred people all have jobs and, you know, I can keep my house, like things like that. So, yeah, that's what I like to do. Sidebar question, when you're in Albatross, are you taking swings or are you just enjoying your time there? It started with a lot of swings, honestly. And I, I enjoyed that, but I kind of just enjoy, yeah, more so it's like, I just enjoy not doing anything. Um, but sometimes I'll go in there and swing for 10, 15 minutes. You just said something about grants. I know that we talked just a second ago about you receiving two $10,000 grants uh, from the city of Chattanooga. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us how you did that, how you apply, what that criteria is? Yeah, this uh, specific grant was for small business owners who were helping 
create jobs or retain jobs post COVID. So this was a, I think this was like a federal grant that our money that had been given to the city. Um, and so I applied for this over two years ago. This was, Whoa. yeah, this was not, I mean, I just got this and I've been kind of on them like every like six months, like, Hey, uh, applied for this grant. I think I deserve something. Right. And so I met with them like two years ago and or like 18 months ago and then met with another group about six months ago. And then finally I got awarded. So yeah, it was more of just like how much money, it was kind of like a tax, how much in tax employer taxes I pay. They kind of gave me up to a like certain dollar amount and then money that I had put into the business, I could like get rewarded back. So this grant, is it in correlation to the employee retention credit tax plan or no? No, completely separate. Okay, cool. Yeah. So this was more specific to just Chattanooga. They just were awarding a few different businesses. And I think they're going to reopen it now that the city has a little bit better structure on who's in charge of this. So I would keep, you know, definitely keep your ears out for like, I'm always Googling like Chattanooga grants, Tennessee grants, small business grants, restaurant grants, like just because there's so many little things, it's like, you know, $2,500 for if you've opened a restaurant in the last five years or something. I mean, you can apply for these things. Some of them, there's a million people applying, you know, but like this one, it was me and one other guy who got awarded it. So I remember Tim Kelly mentioning this two years ago and it was in Times Free Press. And I met, I even sent it to four of my buddies who were restaurant owners and they didn't fill out the paperwork, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, you gotta take you gotta do the do the work too. You gotta you gotta fill out the paperwork. So um uh, tell us managing or leading, Jason, a hundred people. I think anybody knows that they're in leadership. That's a difficult task. We love talking about um potential failures that you may not have seen when you open the Bitter Alibi or the launch of six other restaurants, mm-hmm. if anybody's going down, because a lot of restaurants fail. Sure. So, and I think um, I was told a long time ago that food is not like, there's no money in food. Right. It's what, that's what brings people in. It's the alcohol that what makes the money. But if anybody's going down that road because, um, because it's a fun road, probably. But anybody's going down that road, what can you tell them you learned as a failure and what you learned from that? Yeah, I failures like it's so hard for me because I'm a pretty positive person. So I don't necessarily like dwell on a lot of the failures, but I definitely am like aware of decisions that I make that I'm like, that wasn't like that didn't end up the way I wanted it to. So specifically, I. I leased a building next to Bitter Alibi uh, where the old coin-op arcade was. And I signed a three-year lease for that. I got in there. I started doing demo. I started pulling plans with the architect. And I was like, you know, spent probably $15,000 like just on the beginning of it. And I got into it and I realized this is not, this is not what I want. The space isn't big enough for me to make sense of it. I don't have enough liquid cash to like pour into it. it. We're kind of in the middle of opening up clever in Red Bank and working towards civil up on signal. And I was like, I don't think this is the right move. And so I was able to kind of get out of the lease and give it to another group that just opened up. But that was, you know, two and a half years ago. So it's like, that would have been a huge money pit if I would have got into it. And so that, that to me is like, I don't like burning money. And that was definitely like a, oh, like burning money burning situation. Money situation. <laughs> I like walked away from it and kind of was sick to my stomach. But 
I was able to use the back patio for that kind of summer post-COVID that I think really saved us to be able to have some outdoor seating. But yeah, that one's that's one of those decisions that it could have ended much worse. But I'm glad that, yeah, I'm glad I got out of that. What did you learn from that? Um, I think probably not jumping to what could happen. Like I was worried that we may potentially lose the lease at Bitter Alibi due to it kind of running out of terms, whatever interpersonal stuff was going on with the landlords. So it was like, I was like, if they don't renew our lease, I've got to have somewhere to go with Bitter Alibi. And it made sense, like, let's go around the corner. Um, but I hadn't really done, you know, I kind of jumped the gun and then everything was fine with the new lease because it was my first uh, lease renewal of my career. So I was like, I was just afraid of getting the rug pulled and nothing happened. And I spent a bunch of money on, you know, making a place look good that is not mine. So, um, <laughs> That's yeah, fun. yeah, yeah. I think I, sh- I should have just like actually not been that afraid of the what ifs and kind of, you know, I like having a backup plan, but I was like, I, yeah, it was just an expensive backup plan. So. I mean, that's not so easy to do, especially you said that was uh, during COVID. Like, I mean, I even tell a lot of people that we're friends with is decisions made during COVID, man. I mean, you got to give people some slack because we've never been through a pandemic before in our lifetimes anyways. And uh, sometimes we just don't make the best decisions. No, I was making, I mean, it was, that was like the craziest year for everybody, but for me, it was like every morning I'm having to go on the website to see what's what are protocols and then email the few staff that I have left that are helping me run the restaurants and then posting something. And it's like I was doing all the marketing, all the cooking, all the, you know, major decisions for the companies. So, yeah, I'm kind of glad I only had two during that time because right now I'm like that would have been a lot, a lot to take on. But I do want to ask a question about that now that we're touching on COVID era. So all your businesses are Chattanooga local. So it's easy for us to have this conversation being here. Did you see as a restaurant owner that Chattanoogans were really willing to step up in supporting local businesses, local restaurants throughout that time? I think so. I mean, I think people, you know, definitely rallied around us. Um, You know, Bitter Alibi, we started doing some silly promotionals of, we called them getting baked potatoes and we were just trying to sell all of our canned beer inventory, uh, which wasn't legal at the time. Uh, but we'd wrap them up in aluminum foil and be like, who wants a baked potato? You know, and so we're selling that out. And then we do brunch and take champagne bottles and put aluminum foil. I'm like, they're bowling pins. Who's ready to go bowling? And so, I mean, yeah, looking back at it, it's kind of sketchy. But I was like, what else am I going to do? I can't. I got, you know, thousands of dollars worth of alcohol that nobody's going to come in and drink. And so, yeah, people were really, I think, jumped like on board with a lot of that stuff. I think people were pretty like, you know, I mean, everybody had kind of strong emotions about it in different ways. And so I think some people were just like, they n- didn't show the best of themselves during that time. But majority of people were like so happy that we were open because they really about half the restaurants just didn't open or were so limited hours that, you know, you couldn't do anything. So, yeah, that's awesome to hear. We usually ask a question on the podcast as far as like a strategy or tactic for ROI. Mm-hmm. But I think in this situation, man, I kind of want to rephrase that to you, Jason, with your businesses. 
how do you get your ideal customer to come into whatever, whether it's daily ration, whether it's better, how do you reach that clientele and get them in through those doors? Mm, yeah, I mean, every it feels like every place is a little different because the customer is different. I mean, there's so many people that have, we love Daily Ration. We've never been to Bitter Alibi. And I'm like, Bitter Alibi is 10 years old. You've never been like, <laughs> you know, but I get it. It's like, because people drive by and they're like, not for me. It's a weird little building in a basement. Like my grandmother's not mm. like, yeah. <laughs> she's not like, oh, I want to have pancakes down there. Like That's not going to be her thing. So marketing for us is so strategic depending on the place. I mean, we just sent a mailer through the post office on Signal Mountain. I have never done print in my life. It was 10 years of no print. And I'm like, well, I've done some print, but this was like specific, you know? Um, so we sent out 5,000 mailers for free desserts for people that live in this, wow. a couple of these little uh, areas on Signal. And so we got a billboard for Clever. Never had a billboard before. Daily Ration is a lot of like word of mouth. People come in, make sure that they love you. And just a resource for that neighborhood, working with nonprofits and letting them use the space in the evening and kind of, you know, that goodwill piece. And then Bitter is always, social media has always been the focus with that. Because 10 years ago, um, businesses didn't have social media when we opened. You had like a fan page or something like that. We were really like some of the first restaurants in town to have an Instagram account. And so we've always been pretty active on social with you know, pretty much just being like a meme account right now with, we show our specials, but it's really just like goofy videos and stuff like that. Baked so. potatoes and bowling. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Look back at some of those TikToks. I mean, good grief. I'm, there you go. I'm over there bored out of my mind, you know, cooking for 15 people lunch and I'm just like, whatever, I'm, I'm not at home like everybody else. So it was, it was something. Jason, I'm going to uh, expound on Isaiah's um uh, question a little bit and say, what is one positive tactic or strategy to prove a positive return on investment? And I think you just kind of laid into a little bit like you got to be open to like different things, billboards, socials, you know, print, uh, word of mouth, whatever. But earlier you said one of the best things that will save you a million dollars is occupying a place that was already an existing restaurant or bar. Mm -hmm. Is that because people think that it's a place that's still open? Is it because the build-out's already done? How, I mean, what's the strategy there? Yeah, I think it's kind of a combo of those. I mean, the biggest dollar is when you take a building that wasn't a restaurant and try to put a hood system and a grease trap and a fire suppression and fire poles. All that stuff is expensive. And the second you start doing that stuff, then they're going to come in and say, oh, actually, you need wider doors. Your ADA ramp's not wide enough. You're, it's like, they'll go into making you refit this building. And so the only one we've had to do was the one up on Signal Mountain, which we knew going into it, we're like, this is all going to have to be redone. But Signal Mountain was ready for just like they were kind of letting us like make things happen because there's not that many restaurants up there. So they were they were excited about that. Um, and then also the, you know, the longer a building sits empty, the less kind of memory that people have of going there. So like even for us, when Farmer's Daughter closed eight years ago, we had people there the next Sunday. There was probably 150 people came for brunch on Sunday, and we didn't have the sign up yet. So it was like people didn't know. They just knew, oh, this was a brunch restaurant, and now they're here, and now they're eating, and they're like eating brunch. They're like, where's <laughs> that food that we had last week? Well, that's a different restaurant now. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's we kind of got, got in trouble because it was a little too fast. Because we didn't let people like sit in their morning of their restaurant that they loved. 
we were like, oh, we're here now. And most people are like, thank you for being here because, you know, it's different, but it's also we're glad that it's here. And then we definitely had the diehards. Well, we just missed those sweet potato cinnamon rolls and whatever. Like, yeah, we can't make them. I don't have the recipe. The lady moved to Nashville. So, you know, it's like, <laughs> like, we got baked potatoes. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. What do you want? Yeah. Like, we're doing waffles now, you know. Nice. So, uh, that being said, would you be comfortable disclosing? And if you don't, that's cool. Like, what kind of financial commitment is it going to take to retrofit a building that's not a restaurant to install in the hoods and the fire suppression and the ADA, all that other mm-hmm. bullshit that we don't know? Right. Is that like hundred grand? No, more than that. Well, I mean, it's, yeah, if you took an existing restaurant, like we're just opening up the place on Station Street called Lost in Transit. We took that over like the 30th of October. And we were open the 31st of October. Like I literally had preemptively gotten all of my things in and got approved for occupancy and fires. So that was, that cost me a thousand dollars to go into a, it, it doesn't have a kitchen, but to go in and completely redo it, you know, it was almost no money at all. Um, but then you take something like Signal Mountain where we're coming in there, we get, oh, the roof's leaking. Oh, the, all the plumbing, new HVAC, like that's half a million dollars in just like getting the building to code and then furnishing. So it was, it's a, it was a huge investment, you know, we're hoping the ROI is good on it. Um, (laughs) But it's also, it also is different too, because I actually purchased that building. And so by putting the money into it with the business, it allows actually like equity, you've got equity and now the building's worth more. And even if the business doesn't work, the property is that backbone. I don't own all the properties, but... Um, is the one on Signal the only one you, that you do own? I own the one in Red Bank, too. So, let's dive into the choo-choo. Okay. Is this the old place that used to be like the self-poor house, or am I... Yeah, so this was the old poor station. It had 29 drafts, and we've kind of refigured it to be less... It's not a self-poor thing. Now, it's like 20 seats inside, um, probably another 60 on the patio, and we've actually, the Choo Choo Gardens, it's actually an event company now too. So we have another company that runs all of the events back at the Choo Choo. So if you haven't been to the Choo Choo, it is like 30,000 square feet of turf, a stage, um, all the infrastructure for like food and drink and kind of party mode. So that's going to be kind of soft launch in March, April. And then we're already got bookings for the summer for people who want to throw events back there. So I'm really excited about that. That was the big draw for me for the train. The train itself is more of a passion project of just like, yeah, my son will love me more if I have a train. So, I was like, <laughs> you know, so I'm like, I, that's, I was like, I felt good about that. And also the entry to that was no, didn't cost anything because they just wanted somebody to activate it. Is this more of a full-time restaurant or is it just an event space venue? In the spring, we'll launch it like full-time kind of bar. It's probably just going to be like a quiet cocktail bar um, most evenings. And then when there's events, it'll kind of be set up to be able to do whatever it needs to do. Um, and then there's also the space that was, it was called Blue Light was the last thing. It was like this dance club and it was open for two years and they closed. It was kind of that same thing. They're like, we just need somebody here. So I came in with the pressure washer and <laughs> uh, cleaned all that out through the front door. Um, and then... Uh, we've, we've soft opened that up. We're going to be open, um, every weekend in December for kind of a Christmas themed holiday cocktail thing. And then reopen in March with more of like a European inspired kind of pub 
like nice listening room for we can have a piano, some live music, and then in the evening can transition into a little bit more younger crowd. So I think that's an awesome spot and you're the perfect person to make that a uh an again cool spot. So we're really looking forward to seeing what you do there. So Jason, you've talked a lot about your business. Obviously, there's been some people that have probably helped along the way. Have you had any mentors or any people along the line of that that have been influential on you? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the thing with owning restaurants especially is like nobody will fully understand your life unless they're doing it. And so by finding people that are restaurant owners, you know, I have pretty good relationships with a few and then I also am really good friends with um, Alan Outlaw, who owns Fast Break Athletics, and he's kind of this like good mentor of just this business has been open since the 70s, and he's taken it over as somebody who didn't really know what they were doing and has like really created this cool culture around running. So him and I always vent to each other and, you know, strategize a little bit. I enjoy working with him a lot. Some of the like upper echelon restaurant folks are, they're about 10 years older than me at least, and so... I don't really have great, like any relationships with them. I've worked for them in the past, but a lot of it's like the younger guys who have come under me. Um, so I'm probably a little bit more of a mentor to them in some respect, but it's still, it kind of goes both ways because they're younger, they're newer. They know trends more than I do. They're, you know, they even have their ear to the ground a little bit more with the pulse of Chattanooga. And so like Jacob Mundy, who's just opened up Outpost on Main Street and he owns Base Camp. Him and I have been good buddies for a long time, and he was actually my old kitchen manager at Daily Ration. So, yeah, it's fun to kind of have a few people in the phone that if you have a quick question, you can call and just be like, hey, I've got this beer board application. What do I do? Yeah, George um, from uh, Taqueria Jalisco or Ania, he's, he's a buddy of mine. And so him and I are always, you know, going back and forth, back and forth on the, the red tape of the city. Of, you know, <laughs> love talking about that. So That's awesome. Well, I just realized I've been saying the name of uh, that restaurant completely wrong. <laughs> so thank you for correcting me. Uh, if you're going for dinner in Chattanooga, that's a restaurant that's not yours, Jason, where are you going? Man, I don't go to dinner as much as I'd like anymore with these kids, but I've been really impressed with um, Hello Monty on the main street. I just, I think their beer's awesome. I think their food's pretty spectacular. You know, the safe ones, obviously like Aaliyah, Easy Bistro, they're always, they're so consistent, so tasty. Um, yeah, those are probably, and, and Taqueria, Ania, I, I enjoy that kind of for the more casual date night. Um, what's it called? Wooden City that just took over where the old Easy Bistro is. It's been over a year now, but yeah, that's such a cool space and drinks are great. Service is always impeccable. So, I also uh, read where you stated something like, um, it's not always the first thing you Google, you know, you could be the eight page on Yelp. So right. don't count any restaurant out. Um, as we're wrapping up here, Jason, I got a question for you, you know, for a more dedicated entrepreneur, because I know, uh, some people, um, like let's say old man rivers that mm -hmm. finally opened his own restaurant, but everybody that I know that's opened their restaurant are just married to it. They're there all day, every day until two in the morning, whatever. And I know you did say that you were, you know, cooking during COVID and throwing out baked potatoes and bowling pins, but how have you successfully unmarried? How are you not there at each restaurant every day, all day? 
people ask that all the time, especially small business owners. They're just like, well, I went into daily ration. They said you weren't there today. Like, yeah, I'm <laughs> not there every day. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I can't be. Um, and I think coming to terms with that, of just that there are going to be things that I miss. There are going to be decisions that are made by other people um, that I trust that may not be what I would do. But I have to believe that my management specifically, but everybody else on the team and in the culture has the business in mind. They're never going to love it as much as me, but they have to like, we always talk about like, I'm very transparent with like numbers with my crew. Like we have goals every day, you know, and that's from the person washing dishes to the person, you know, hosting to bartending. Like we really want to hit this number. This is what we've budgeted for, for labor. So like, let's try to hit it. And the way we hit that is with consistency. It's like the food's got to be good every time. If people come, they'll, they'll give you like one break normally. Like, oh, that wasn't what it was before. But if they have that meal twice. They're done. It, there's just no way. I mean, I know that's for me. I, you know, I'm, I give people tons of opportunity to win me back. But for, the you know, a casual guest, it's, I think you got two, two or three shots at the most. But yeah, I've just come to terms with that I'm not going to have eyes on everything. That's all I can do is just kind of coach and like put people in place that I believe will do a good job. So let me follow up if I can. Yeah. So you're basically saying you're empowering people to make decisions. What do they have a, um, a platform, a questionnaire? Is there something, if somebody's going to come to a manager, do they have a guide when it comes to making decisions? Yeah. I mean, I think that's why I actually have more managers too, because that's a lot of owners won't hire me. They'll hire managers after like two years because they realize I can't do all of this by myself or they'll hire a manager, but they're just kind of a glorified server or something like an assistant. I'm pretty quick to mean like, hey, you're the GM of this. Here's all the expectations that are laid out. Here's when we're going to meet. Here's the projections. Here's the goals. Here's your commission. If you hit these goals, like from the beginning, it's like I'm willing to give up the decisions of like, oh, we need more new light bulbs. Jason, can I go on Amazon and order more light bulbs? You don't have to ask me about light bulbs. You know, you have to ask me about the stuff that you're like, I actually don't know if this is good for the business or over a certain dollar amount of spending. Like our cooler is down. Do we spend $700 to get it fixed or we spend $1,200 on a new one? Like, you know, I've had a lot of used cars. So that question of like, <laughs> oh, the, the engine went out. Cool. Um, is this worth fixing? Um, so yeah, most of it's that. Like just, I give them a basic kind of manual, but the more that they feel like free to make the decisions that are best for the business. And they know if they spend money on dumb stuff, that's going to come out of the P&L at the end of the quarter. And if we, you know, if we spent too much on dry goods and now we're sitting on a warehouse full of paper cups, then it's like, um, that's money that they're not going to get in their bonus and we're just have to sell a lot of coffee to get rid of them. <laughs> so I'm interested in this as far as looking towards the future. It's no secret that there's a fair amount of people in Chattanooga that are involved in the food and beverage industry and maybe even more restaurant than one. Mm -hmm. Are you interested to keep moving the ball forward on that moving towards the future? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of looking for the next generation of people within my company to kind of take on these existing restaurants or help them kind of me have ownership in their vision. And so I'm working with some people right now within the company that are extremely motivated, way more knowledgeable about, especially about wine and spirits than I am. And so trying to 
figure out what is that next step for the company, but also how do I how do I have such good talent that work under me that I'm like I want to work beside some of these people in different spaces. So right now, I mean, I feel like I probably have 10 more years of like being in this position as kind of this owner helping facilitate a lot of this. I'm kind of looking for that next group to kind of come in and and help them because I feel like that's something that doesn't happen with restaurants. It's almost like family-owned restaurants. That's how they run. But you see restaurants, they've been open 22 years and then they close. And you're like, why would you close a 22-year-old restaurant? It has to be making money. And they don't sell it because they don't want somebody to mess it up. Or then you've got the people that are like, let's open up five restaurants, bundle them together, sell them to a big company. They'll come in. You saw that with like Big River Grill and stuff like that where it's like, those are cool brands. They've been sold, 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 sold. And then they die like a horrific death because the soul is gone. So for me, it's like, how do you keep the soul in these places? But also, you know, I'm going to get worn down by the business. And so I just need that next group to kind of come in and take some of the burden and hopefully make more money than they would if they went to work at a Fortune 500 company or something. So Awesome. It's good for you to have that foresight and the possibility of your leaders making more money yep. and, and taking on um, that. I think uh, definitely more of a reason to support your uh, your restaurants. We can't thank you enough for being on our podcast. Do you want to end as we wrap up? Would you share with us any like profound book recommendations? Yeah, I am not much a reader. I wish I was. I don't think I have dyslexia, but I have horrible reading comprehension. So I'm a podcaster through and through. I listen to probably hundreds of hours of podcasts. And most of it's like recommendations from other people that are smarter than me. So um, I wish I had like a full list of stuff. But I also, for me, like good comedy podcasts are some of my favorite things just to put on. And like that can be kind of my, yeah, that's the one thing I'm not a very good academic. So when it comes to like, reading the books and learning from the best, that is always tough for me, which that's probably something I really need to work on because it probably would help (laughs) me out a lot. One question we do ask Jason every single podcast episode is looking back to square one, the start of your journey, if you could go back and tell younger Jason something or tell just our listener that's Mm -hmm. wanting to get headed on a similar route, one piece of advice, hit us with that. Yeah. I mean, I think the good thing I was able to do was to take the jump, take the leap. I think a lot of people aren't able to do that. I think I did jump in head first and probably should have talked with a bookkeeper and an accountant <laughs> and an attorney. And, you know, just those things are so vital to the headaches that come along the way. If you get the pros involved in the beginning, it's expensive, but it's, it will save you such a headache whenever you don't file something correctly or you didn't sign up for this thing on time or you didn't. It's like all that stuff will beat you down and keep you up at night. So I sleep really well at night knowing that all my financials and all my planning is done, is clean. My books are clean. You know, it just feels really nice knowing that things are being done. So get the pros involved. Very important. (laughs) (laughs) You look back now and you're thinking like, well, yeah, no shit. Yeah. That's kind of, yeah, whatever. But I was 25 too when I, so it was like, I I had no idea what I was doing, you know, but I knew I, what I wanted to do. I just didn't know how to do it. And so you learn the hard way on some things, but it was fun. 
Well, man, we are, uh, again, grateful for you uh, to come on our podcast. If you're listening and in Chattanooga or not in Chattanooga, make sure you visit Bitter Alibi, Daily Ration, Clever Ale House, Civil Provisions, Dilemma, Lost in Transit, and what might be bad motive or locomotive or the Chattanooga motive. We don't know that one yet, but uh, check them out. Thanks again. Thank you, Jason. Cool. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to Square One Podcast, a podcast brought to you by Omni Home Services, where we rep Chattanooga Home Inspector, Nuclear Pest Control, Elevate Home Staging and Design, and Radon Eraser. We release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode.